Aloha. You're listening to A History of Maryland. This is episode 2.2b, Maryland versus the Pilgrims. A supplementary episode which never really should have existed. It was just supposed to be part of a few paragraphs in the last episode, introducing the Pilgrims as part of our little tour of the English colonization efforts during the Jacobean era. But forgive me, for I knew not what I was about to unleash. One of the recurrent themes I'm hoping to inject into a history of Maryland is just how different and kind of weird our little province slash colony slash state could be. And I thought a good way to do that would be to compare and contrast Maryland with Plymouth. Because as I'll say ad nauseum throughout this podcast, the Pilgrim story is essentially the American foundation story. Everyone knows it, or at least a bit of it. So first, we're going to demythologize the Pilgrim story a little bit, try to get it into more of a 17th century context, and then we'll see how it sizes up to Maryland in regards to a few of the big angles of the American Foundation story, like seeking freedom from oppression, the birth of democracy, and freedom of religion. And this is nice for me because it gives me a chance to jump ahead of the narrative and actually talk about Maryland a little bit. I know, it's been a little like a history of Newfoundland so far, and we're not done with that. We still have a few twists and turns to get through on that island. But today, I'll be able to provide you with a little proof of intent and talk about the motherland. We're also going to take this opportunity to dig a little deeper into one of our broadly generalized religious factions, the Puritans. And I can't stress the broadly generalized bit enough. Anglican, Puritan, and Catholic aren't monolithic, non-porous categorizations. I just use them for convenience. There's really a whole religious spectrum in England, with Anglican traditionalists and relatively moderate Puritans fighting for the soul of the English church. And the center point of that spectrum will shift to and fro significantly over the next few decades. At the fringes of this spectrum are Puritan subgroups like the Separatists, who want to get rid of the state church altogether. And as we'll see throughout the narrative, Catholics too had their own factions, orders, and national cultures, all with their own different perspectives. And these variations will all serve as an essential part of the backdrop for the history of Maryland. So as you can see, the scope and breadth of this podcast has got totally out of hand. To make things fit, I won't be going into too much narrative detail pertaining to the entire Pilgrim story. Just the stuff which I've cherry-picked in order to give my rambling the illusion of cohesion. And be warned, we're occasionally going to stumble off the safe and easy path of people, places, and dates, and get a little more philosophical and interpretive than I might usually get on this podcast. And I've done my best to avoid the quicksand in this arena, but you'll have to be the judge of that. If you're looking for more of a straight narrative history of the Pilgrims, you can try Jamie Redfern's The History of the United States podcast. He also does the Jamestown story. And if you want a more in-depth history of the Old Dominion, I have just discovered that there is a Virginia history podcast made by Robert Van Ness, which I am super excited about and I've already tore through on my daily commutes. Virginia looms large in Maryland's history. And from the perspective of the Calverts, and throughout much of the later Maryland-centric historiography, Virginia is mostly going to play the villain. Which is why I think it's great that the Virginian perspective will be an easy reach in podcast format for those who want to cross the Potomac and see how the other half lives. Because I'll probably be milking the whole bad guy thing mercilessly myself, and you really ought to have a counterweight to my bias. As of right now, the Virginia History Podcast is at roughly the same time frame in its narrative as we are in ours, uh, the early 1620s. And the VHP has already put lie to at least two things I have claimed earlier. One, that I haven't really heard any dedicated state-level narrative histories yet. And two, that I haven't really heard anyone tell the story of Sir Humphrey Gilbert. Well, Robert Van Ness was doing both of those things years ago, so check it out. With that preamble out of the way, let's get the show on the road. It's late 1620. The Virginia colony has been around for about 13 years. The island of Bermuda has been an English possession and destination for about as long. Secretary of State Sir George Calvert has just plopped a bunch of cash down on some land in Newfoundland. 
And there's another big development on the Jacobean colonization front happening over in New England, where the Plymouth Colony is being founded by a splinter group of radical separatist recusant Puritans we all know as the Pilgrims. Driven from England by the conviction of their beliefs, by the oppression of a state church they couldn't in good conscience conform to, the Pilgrims set off to the New World in search of the freedom to create a new society, one which conformed more closely to their beliefs than the societies they left back in England and Holland. And I think this is the model most Americans think of first, if and when they ever think of their early colonial period. You know the story of the Pilgrims. Even when that story gets passed along as an incomplete batch of half-truths, outright myths, and a cartoon characterization of a guy with buckled shoes shooting blunderbusses at turkeys, it's still instantly recognizable. Because the foundation story for the colony of Plymouth has become the foundation story of America. I think the reason for this is fairly simple. The Pilgrim story jibes with almost everything that comes after in American history in regards to the way most Americans wish to see themselves down through the centuries. The conflict with royal authority sat well with patriots around the time of the American Revolution. There have been four great awakenings of Protestantism in America between the 18th century and the 20th century. With the sheer devotional purity of the Pilgrims no doubt carried to historical preeminence by each wave. Just before the American Civil War, copies of William Bradford's journal of Plymouth Plantation would make their way back to the U.S. William Bradford was a leading light of the Pilgrims and longtime governor of Plymouth during much of its foundational period. And of Plymouth Plantation was a core primary source of history for the Pilgrims. The original journal had ended up in England. Some soldier or loyalist had absconded with it after the British occupation of Boston during the Revolution. And it had fallen off the face of the earth for a while. And its rediscovery led to pilgrim mania in America, especially in the North. After the Civil War, the idea that the foundation of America as a political entity began in Virginia 13 years before the Plymouth Colony, that would be toned down and tuned out a bit. During the Progressive Era, the Pilgrim story would not only resonate with the deeply Protestant roots of progressivism, but also with its communitarian and collectivist aspects. No doubt their conservative opponents found their own true meaning of the Pilgrims to embrace. During the Cold War and the Red Scares, the story of pilgrims seeking freedom of conscience from the state church meshes well with the idea of Christians seeking freedom of conscience from state-enforced atheism, to the point where declaring your faith in God to prove you're not a commie would work its way into the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. I personally find that ironic for a few reasons, not the least of which, God-fearing or not, Plymouth was essentially a commune for its first three years. Property was held in common. It wouldn't be until 1623 that they'd realize if they wanted to achieve anything beyond just barely feeding themselves, let alone buying themselves out from under their debts, that they'd have to switch to a system of private property. Because that system actually, you know, works. And you see, I just did it there myself. Everyone takes the bits about the pilgrims they want, conveniently forgets the bits they don't, to make some kind of broader point about what it means to be an American. Even if right now you're sitting in your university critical thinking class, penning your term paper about how the pilgrims were just a bunch of white, patriarchal, religious fundamentalists who only took breaks from their misogyny long enough to murder any indigenous peoples they can get their hands on, you're still participating in a sort of national pastime. There are two points to this tangent. First, I'm trying to underscore just how much of what we understand about the pilgrims, and by extension the foundation of our country, has been selectively singled out and emphasized well after the fact. A perfect example of this is our national holiday of Thanksgiving. There's a lot to like about the sentiments we try to enshrine in that holiday. And for the record, I'll march in lockstep with any national myth which promises me stuffing and gravy. But technically, the historical reality we're basing it on is from a couple sentences about a pilgrim feast where a bunch of their Wampanoag allies showed up. Everything else is just centuries worth of window dressing. Now I'm not trying to hate on the pilgrims or attack cultures for developing historical parables. I'm just trying to illuminate the minefield of biases you have to tiptoe through when we attempt to put these things back in their early 17th century context. More to the point of this podcast, I want to contrast the story of Plymouth 
with the story of Maryland. We're so familiar with a story of religious minorities seeking freedom in the New World. It'd be real simple to frame the foundation of Maryland as a low-budget reboot of the Pilgrims for a Catholic audience. But that'd be a mistake. This isn't going to be the Pilgrims 2, a Catholic boogaloo. And the early colonial history of Maryland is not going to jibe so comfortably with later American ideals and rhetoric. It's part of the reason I think Maryland history is different and cool. And I hope you'll think so too. I can remember back in early elementary school watching a film in class on the Pilgrims. One of those old film projector education shorts, you know, literally the same movie and the same can of film they were showing kids in that same class back in the 50s with all the pops and crackles and distortions in the audio, with the film occasionally fluttering in the projector. You know the type. In England, in the early 1600s, there was a tiny band of people who called themselves separatists. They wished only to worship in their own way. Open up in the name of the king! Open up, ye heretics! And the one thing I can still remember from that movie, blurry and distorted as the memory might be, was King James. I think he was wringing his hands nefariously at the thought of absolute power, or clenching his fists in fury at the thought of those meddlesome separatists. And I can remember thinking at the time, this guy is a tyrant. And from the Pilgrim perspective, he was. But that wasn't a certain thing when James first took the English throne. Many Puritans were hopeful. They'd be getting a rough ride under Elizabeth. The Religion Act in 1592 was just the most recent law promising imprisonment, fines, and even exile for any recusants, anyone harboring recusants, and anyone trying to convince someone else to become a recusant. And I know I've previously been pronouncing it recusant and giving it some kind of faux French flourish for some reason but it's probably recusant. And again, what that term is describing is anyone who refuses to attend the services of the state church or denies the monarch's supremacy over the church and over religious matters. These laws didn't just target Catholics. Non-conforming Protestants were also very much in the crosshairs. And in the case of hardcore separatist Puritans like the Pilgrims, two of their luminaries were executed in 1593 for printing and distributing seditious materials. So in walks James Stewart. He was raised in Presbyterian Scotland. The Presbyterian model of the Church of Scotland was a proper, representative Church of Elders, basing their belief on the ancient and holy scripture. Not some Catholic light hierarchy of bishops and archbishops, basing their beliefs on whatever the current monarch said last week. This was a good sign for English Puritans then, right? Well, no. James's ambitions were thoroughly absolutist. He wanted the church hierarchy, with himself at the top of the pyramid. It was the divine order of things. He would famously reason, no bishop, no king. As in, if you let these guys get rid of the bishops, one day they might just get it in their heads to get rid of the king. And everything would go to hell in a handbasket. In fact, James would prefer Anglicanism's Episcopalian model so much, he'd export it back to the Church of Scotland. And the subsequent conflict in Scotland between the Episcopalian model and the Presbyterian model would have all kinds of ripple effects down the road, from being a major component of the English Civil Wars to inducing thousands of Presbyterian Scots to settle in Ulster, thus becoming the Scots-Irish. And yes, the Scots-Irish will be a thing in Maryland. But back in 1603, they didn't know this yet. So a bunch of Puritan ministers tried to petition James for reforms to the state church. But when James formalized his position to church leaders at the Hampton Court Conference in 1604, he would mostly ignore the Puritan suggestions. One of the few consolations to Puritans would be a new Bible written in English. This would be the King James Bible. And even this conciliatory gesture would be a conscious attempt to broaden the tent of Anglicanism just enough to bring in the most moderate Puritans, while wiping out all of those inconvenient evangelical and puritanical annotations found in the Geneva Bible. This is why when the pilgrims traveled to Plymouth, they'd be taking the Geneva Bible. 
By 1606, James and the archbishops began turning the heat back up to 11 on the separatists, with surveillance, harassment, fines, and imprisonment. By 1607, many separatists were slipping out of the country, individually or in small groups, and heading for the more religiously tolerant environs of Holland. And so there we have the first angle in America's foundation story, seeking freedom from oppression. And in that story, King James and his minions in the state church are specifically the catalyst which drives the separatists out of their old country. Now let's juxtapose this for a minute with Maryland. There's a tendency to focus on the similar intolerance towards Catholicism as being the major catalyst for Maryland's colonization. And that's kind of true for some people there. Certainly the Jesuits and Jesuit histories would see things from this angle. But King James and later King Charles weren't running Calvert out of the country. They were rewarding a loyal vassal with lands and incredibly exclusive powers and rights. These powers and rights would not only be retained after Calvert declared for the Roman Church, they would actually be expanded. Facilitating a framework where Catholics could find some modicum of religious freedom was one of Calvert's goals from the outset, if for no other reason than to attend to his own personal spiritual needs. But it was maybe the third priority on his list after turning a profit and securing the power and prestige that a successful plantation would bring him. A second angle of the American Foundation story is the sense of democracy and constitutionalism that the Pilgrims would bring from the outset, specifically via their first governing document, the Mayflower Compact. Some people refer to it as the first American constitution. But let's get this back into context. It's really a contract to bring some sense of legality into a legal void which the Pilgrims had just sailed into because things had not gone according to plan. The separatists who had managed to escape to Holland had mostly clustered in the town of Leiden. They were happy enough there for about 12 years, but things began to heat up again for them. The Dutch were on the precipice of war with Spain once more. Dutch authorities, probably not wanting to alienate a potential Protestant ally in England, finally began taking steps to curb the seditious anti-Anglican screeds the separatists had been printing in Holland and smuggling over into England. And most importantly for the separatist leaders, after a decade in the Netherlands, the congregation was losing cohesion. The old were getting older, and the young were going native and didn't really care so much. So the decision was made by some of the pilgrims to start a settlement in the New World, where they could essentially form their own society. After a lot of negotiations and wrangling, they were able to secure a land grant from the Virginia Company of London, as well as financing from a group called the Merchant Adventurers. But there were some stipulations. The English authorities were a little leery about allowing a purely separatist colony to form in their overseas territory. And the Merchant Adventurers were just as leery about not having any of their own people on the ground. I mean, they had just lent a bunch of money to a politically ostracized religious cult. So for any of this to move forward, it would have to also involve settlers who were not separatists. This was a disappointment to the separatists, who thought their future settlement would be made up of purely their own congregation. I mean, it was kind of the point. But they would acquiesce to these demands. The new settlers, who were not members of the congregation, would be referred to henceforth as strangers by the separatists. And there were more problems. There were multiple delays in departure, which ultimately included the expedition losing one of its ships due to lack of seaworthiness. When the remaining ship, the Mayflower, finally set sail, it was overcrowded, and it was really way too late in the season to be trying to even do this. It's a stormy two-month trip over here. And there would be one reported fatality aboard ship which actually isn't a bad record at all. There would be 12 deaths on the voyage of the Ark and the Dove to Maryland. But the Mayflower had been blown hopelessly off course. They had arrived far to the north of their intended destination, somewhere around Cape Cod. Supplies were too low, the waters were too dangerous, and the winter was too close at hand to do anything but just moor the ship, build some shelters, and try to forage for food. There weren't just environmental ramifications to being this far north, there were legal ramifications as well. Their land grant had come from the Virginia Company of London, 
who only had legal jurisdiction from what would today be Georgia to maybe the Hudson River in New York, well south of what would become Massachusetts. The company who would have jurisdiction there was the newly formed Plymouth Council for New England, and it seems to be from this patent that the region first gets officially rebranded as New England, as it's still known today. But the Council for New England's charter from the king was only just being ratified at roughly the same time as the pilgrims were sailing for what they thought would be Virginia. So either way you cut it, the settlers aboard the Mayflower were in a legal limbo as far as any plantation they might attempt there. And this was worrisome. It meant that any money, time, and effort they were about to expend there could be pulled right out from under them in the English courts. Also, keep in mind that the legal status of the separatist congregation was, in itself, iffy. It depended almost entirely on King James not being stirred by some whim to act against them. So minding their P's and Q's and crossing their T's and dotting their I's was paramount. But there were murmurings aboard the Mayflower among some of the strangers. If they were no longer bound by the articles they had signed with the Virginia Company of London, well then, a few of them suggested they could, quote, use their own liberty, for none had the power to command them. I'm not sure what these folks were actually thinking of attempting here. Whether or not they were just trying to make it clear they weren't going to be bossed around by the separatists, or whether they were actually harboring dreams of building their own libertopia. But cooler heads, those with a little more forethought, would prevail. For one thing, the Mayflower and her crew did not belong to the settlers. It was a taxi service that would be heading back to England at the first opportunity, leaving the settlers in the middle of nowhere, with only each other for mutual aid, defense, and labor. This was not the time to be atomizing into groups of 10 or 20. Also, if they wanted ships from England to come back and bring them stuff, they'd better be attempting to look as legitimate as possible. I think it's with this in mind, before even leaving the ship, the Congregationalists and the Strangers would sit down and draw up a contract, wherein they agreed to essentially stick together and abide by the law as they understood it. This is what became known later as the Mayflower Compact. It definitely has elements of a constitution about it, but it's a little short and vague for that to carry too much weight. I can totally see why it's considered a social contract, but I think that term is anachronistic, and really, a social contract is this amorphous thing that no one gets to agree or vote on. It's usually more of an abstract sense of obligation being foisted upon you by a political entity. To me, the Mayflower Compact makes the most sense as a temporary stopgap DIY legal contract, attempting to bring some order and legitimacy into a very murky situation. The first legitimizer being God as their witness, the second legitimizer being King James and their declared loyalty to him. Because while it might be a general set of rules for self-governance, the Mayflower Compact is just as much a declaration of dependence, which bends over backwards to underscore that they were loyal subjects of James in whose name they were doing this. So loyal. And please, may the next ship bring over food and supplies and not change the haul us all back to England with. After that first brutal winter of 1620 and 1621, the Mayflower would return to England, along with a delegation whose first order of business would be to land a retroactive grant with the Council for New England, which they'd get. But that company and its charter would itself go under in like 15 years, and the Plymouth Colony would never quite shake off its legal iffiness. It would ultimately fall prey to the spin cycle of English political upheavals in the 17th century, being annexed into the province of Massachusetts Bay in 1691-1692. I think the part of the Mayflower Compact that transcends the centuries for us in relation to the foundation of America is that they got together and they voted on it. Well, the men voted on it. It is 1620. But within that context, it was significant that this was their first act as a group when settling on their first governing document and it explicitly promised just and equal laws in the future. It's that sense of constitutional representative democracy about it that resonates. But where was this nascent democracy and republicanism coming from? Well, once we drop all of the 19th century baggage we associate with terms like that, you can see there was actually a good bit of it about. Really, by 1620, England was already securely strapped into the 80-year-long roller coaster ride towards constitutional monarchy. 
they were already ratcheting their way up slowly towards that first big drop. There were plenty of foreign influences about, like the Italian and Dutch merchant republics. But there has been a long and varied tradition of concepts like liberties, checks on authority, and popular consent in England itself, on all levels. Some people reach all the way back to the Anglo-Saxon period and the Witan, the council of wise and powerful men who would sometimes choose kings and decide on policy. In the medieval period, there are things like Magna Carta, where the nobility attempts to check the king or force him to live off his own money. And all of this sets England off on a different trajectory than most other monarchies. In the towns and the cities, their governments, along with the merchant and trade guilds, also had all sorts of special liberties or vaguely democratic aspects to their structures. And there's a system of courts and common law set up all over the place to enforce and protect them. And of course, there's Parliament, which evolved over the centuries into England's sort of legislative branch. At times, it's been the residence of only the most select and powerful in the kingdom, checking each other and the king. As the kings raised the gentry into power as a check against the nobility, Parliament became a rubber stamping machine for royal decrees. It's only really in this period, the early Stuart era, where Parliament digs in against the crown and becomes an authority unto themselves. Now, of course, there were explicit and implicit class restrictions, property restrictions, religious restrictions, gender restrictions, to any of this sort of political enfranchisement. Which is why it can appear more like an oligarchy or a plutocracy of wealthy elites to those of us on this side of the 19th century. But this is how it all evolved. And then as a sort of middle class develops, they begin to find their own levers of wealth and power, and they were able to push their way into parliament, the court system, and positions in the bureaucracy. So there is a fertile secular seedbed for things like constitutionalism and government by consent. There are also deeply religious influences as well. The line between secular and religious at this point is so blurry that the fundamental mechanics of church and congregation have overt political parallels. Puritans rejected the hierarchical structure of the high church because for them, the source of authority came from the word of God, not from popes or archbishops. For the same reason, some of the more radical Puritans, like the Pilgrims, openly reject the idea of a state church, and thus the spiritual authority of the king. And this concept will gain more traction as time goes on. What these Puritans embraced instead was a congregational group structure bound by the idea of covenants. A covenant is a contract or a compact, and Puritans see implicit covenants throughout the Bible. One example would be God's covenant with Adam. Okay, so this part basically says you'll get to live here in the Garden of Eden for eternity, so long as you don't eat any fruit off of that one tree over there, the one with a snake in it. Okay? Great. I just need you to initial that and sign here. And we all know how that turns out. Adam broke the covenant. And thus he, and by extension all the rest of us, are cast into a world of death, suffering, and despair. So Puritans are all about making a new covenant with God, and about congregations making a spiritual covenant amongst each other to live and work together towards this goal. And this informs their view of everything, not just about church structure, but about social and legal structure. When Puritan communities start popping up everywhere in New England, many communities will be built around covenants that will essentially be legally binding. So when the separatists helped draft and sign the Mayflower Compact, it would likely have been a familiar literal extension of the spiritual covenants they had already made. Whether the strangers aboard the Mayflower would have seen it as more than a short-term legal agreement, I'm not sure. Either way, it seems to have done its job. And even within its proper historical context, I think there is something remarkable about the Mayflower Compact. There really are elements of democracy and constitution which echo across the centuries, no matter how subconscious they might be. So to me, it makes perfect sense that people try to rope the Mayflower Compact into the foundation story of America. And by the same measure, it makes perfect sense that those same people would try and forget all about Maryland and her founding charter. Because it's got nothing to do with that democracy and equality jive. As we discussed briefly in the last podcast, Maryland would be a proprietary colony. To be ruled by the reigning Lord Baltimore and his heirs with king-like powers. 
It's really supposed to be a kind of throwback to medieval feudalism, or at least a romanticized 17th century version of it. The king bestows land onto a loyal vassal, who in turn pays homage and fealty to their king. In return for the province of Maryland, and the incredible powers bestowed on him by the charter, Lord Baltimore was required to deliver a payment of two Indian arrowheads every year to Windsor Castle on the Tuesday before Easter. Now that's what I call a bargain, but there's an important symbolism to the whole thing. Lord Baltimore, for all of his proprietary powers, must essentially pay homage to the king once a year. It's an act of duty and submission delineating the true hierarchy. To further underscore this sort of old-school feudal arrangement, the Maryland Charter of 1632 would contain what's known as a Bishop of Durham Clause, this grants the proprietor all of the rights, jurisdictions, privileges, prerogatives, immunities, etc. that, quote, ever hath had, held, used, and enjoyed as any bishop of Durham within the bishopric or county palatine of Durham in our kingdom of England, unquote. And what this does is establish Maryland as a palatinate. And palatinate is a word we've heard before, though I've pronounced it different ways when we talked about James and his son-in-law, Frederick V, who was the elector count of the Palatinate in Germany. Well, that Palatinate is only the most famous one, known specifically as the County Palatine of the Rhine, or the Rheinbalz, or something like that. I can't really roll my R's. But there are other Palatinates floating around, including three at one point in the Kingdom of England. From around the 11th century, these counties Palatine were fiefdoms set up along the marches or the borders separating England from Wales, or in the case of the Bishopric of Durham, from Scotland. And though the lords of these fiefdoms owed nominal loyalty to the king, within their own counties they were essentially sovereign states. They were originally allowed this power so that the lords could react quickly and effectively to raids or potential invasions in these often lawless and dangerous border regions. These were the front lines of any conflicts. They didn't have time to wait for explicit orders from the king who was on the other side of the kingdom, or to rely on using his court system. But by the Tudor era, these privileges were being chipped away and reeled in. Henry VII and Henry VIII, and their efforts to centralize the power of the crown at the expense of powerful nobles, had mostly defanged the true independence of the county's palatine by the mid-1500s, and brought them more firmly under royal control. So, by 1632, the Bishopric of Durham didn't necessarily have these full powers anymore, but the Maryland Charter specifically grants the rights and powers that any Bishop of Durham ever had. So what King Charles I is doing here is reaching back to that old medieval construct and once again creating fiefdoms and empowering vassals with these extensive powers to protect the new borders of an expanding British Empire. And this all had plenty to do with the Stuart philosophy about the power of the king. It allows them to dole out favors, patronage, and influence in the traditional courtly manner sans parliament. If the proprietary colony succeeds, then not only are the borders of the British Empire expanded, there's now a colonial government based on the very royalist model that the Stuarts wished for in England. Colonial governments that were ultimately loyal to the king. And if the proprietary colony didn't succeed, well, it didn't really cost the king anything anyway. It's just a bunch of land he theoretically owns on the other side of the ocean. It's mostly the proprietor's money, effort, and life on the line here. There will be a second wave of proprietary colonies after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, where King Charles II will approve similar charters for colonies like Carolina and Pennsylvania. But the Maryland Charter was written and applied 30 years earlier, and was arguably, quote, the most ample in its privileges of any granted by a British sovereign, unquote. And that's a line from William Hand Brown's George Calvert and Cecilius Calvert. And he also provides a really good summation of what these privileges were. So I'm going to continue reading from that same book. Quote, It invested the proprietary and his lineal descendants forever with the perpetual and hereditary ownership of the soil and the waters, empowered him to make peace or war, to suppress insurrection or sedition, to call out, arm, and command the militia, and to declare martial law, to levy rents, taxes, dues, and tolls, 
to confer titles and dignities, to erect towns, boroughs, and cities, and to erect and found churches and cause them to be consecrated, to make laws, public or private, to establish courts of justice and appoint judges, magistrates, and other civil officers, and to execute the laws, even to the extent of taking life. Ritz ran in his name. There was no appeal from his courts, nor did the laws enacted in his assembly require any confirmation from king or parliament." Unquote. And that's not exactly the inalienable rights of individuals or all men are created equal, is it? Nor is it, give us your tired and poor yearning to breathe free. Cecil Calvert, Lord Proprietor of the Palatinate of Maryland, would specifically try to import the upscale manorial nuclear structure of the English countryside to his new province on the Chesapeake. The whole sales scheme for the colony will be directed at the gentry and the lesser nobility. Land was key to this sort of status, and terribly hard to get your hands on without serious money, advantageous marriages, and or political influence. And for the upwardly mobile, here was their chance to get in on the ground floor at bargain rates and have their own huge estates overseas. And the more laborers and seed money they brought with them, the more land would be granted by the Lord Proprietor. This sort of laborers for land agreement is known as the headright system, and it's going to be a common one used in many colonies around this time. But combine this system with the manorial social structure and the autocratic and quasi-medieval royalist nature of a proprietary colony in a county palatine, then it starts to look an awful lot like the 17th century remnants of the feudal order, being planted in America in one of the earliest English colonies there. You may have noticed that I haven't mentioned anything about slavery. That's because it wasn't part of the original design of Maryland. And in the early 1600s, the English in general were still kind of ambivalent about the institution. For one thing, the political class divide was broad enough, and the economy was bad enough, that they had their own pools of cheap labor that they could legally boss around, contractually, for years at a time. It was also a time where a lot of Englishmen thought you couldn't enslave someone who had been baptized as a Christian. And it was a point of national pride that they weren't as despotic and cruel as those Spaniards and Portuguese who had institutionalized so much barbarism into their colonies. Not that this stopped English privateers from chiseling in on the slave trade to undercut the Spanish and Portuguese monopolies on it, but every once in a while you might just see them freeing a seized cargo of slaves. The first Africans brought to Virginia were indentured servants. They probably didn't have too much say in the matter, but I suppose seven years indenture beats a lifetime of chattel. And there was some slim chance of upward mobility from there in those early years. You could be granted your own land after your term of indenture. Slavery will rear its head in Maryland in about 1642, less than a decade after its founding. But even then, for years, it would only be a small fraction of the workforce which still consisted mostly of white indentured servants. Over the mid to late 1600s, the laws regarding slavery will start to change, more and more creating an explicit racial caste system, locking African people and their children in for life. And by the late 1600s, towards the end of the century, the floodgates are going to open. Slavery as a Maryland institution is coming, and we'll get way more into it when it does, but right now, in the 1630s, it's not really part of the big plan. The Maryland ideal wasn't to create an egalitarian community of brethren around the covenant with God, or to be a place where the rugged individual could carve a piece of the world out for himself. The Maryland ideal was a rich countryside of manor houses, each run by a lord who oversees as his personal domain a mostly self-sufficient and self-contained microcosm of family, servants, tradesmen, and laborers, all working to keep the manor productive and profitable and to keep their most benevolent and protective lord in comfort and style, while he works to keep his most benevolent and protective lord proprietor living in style, who in turn is loyally serving his benevolent and protective sovereign king at the tippity-top of the pyramid. And right about now you're probably saying, well, great. You're going to glorify a bunch of wannabe aristocrats trying to resurrect serfdom. Real cool, Jared. And on the most superficial level, yeah, kinda. I find this sort of thing novel and fascinating. 
mostly because it was 400 years ago and I don't have to live under it. On a deeper level though, I'd like to challenge a few assumptions and smudge that line separating black from white a little bit. As usual, we have to look first at the context. What are we comparing Maryland's autocratic design to? Virginia? For settlers, the early years at Jamestown had all of the liberties and amenities of a military prison. All except food. It was run by a company across the ocean who couldn't understand why you'd be so lazy and unprofitable as to starve, contract malaria, and die. And they would mostly recommend a cure of total social control and more forced labor. The settlement itself was run by a series of gentrified oligarchs and dictators, who when they weren't terrorizing their own population by making pretty much anything punishable by death, they were fighting amongst themselves over who would be in charge of the colony. And I love this. The place is a meat grinder. The majority of the settlers are already dead. You can't leave the safety of the walls on pain of instantly becoming a human pincushion full of Indian arrows. People are eating their shoes. And amidst it all, you can still count on there being a couple of alpha males attempting to kill each other over who gets to be the king of this dung heap. Now, to be fair, the winner probably got first dibs on the softest and most delectable shoes for supper, so, you know, maybe it was worth it. My point is, for a decade or so at least, Virginia is a nightmare hellscape of jackboot authoritarianism. No rhetoric about the divine right of kings is necessary. These are just awful times. Plymouth comes off much better in this regard, at least to those of us watching from afar. They had a period of immense suffering in these early years, yet it didn't lead to so many egregious examples of the settlement cannibalizing itself, both figuratively speaking, and as far as I know, literally speaking, unlike Jamestown. Again, I think this is part of the reason the Plymouth story has become mostly synonymous with the American Foundation story. It just seems to us like they handled it better. But in reality, the Maryland design will have its own advantages and disadvantages to those living under it. And there's at least one angle of the story of America where Maryland will outshine most others in these early days, including Plymouth. And that angle is freedom of religion. This was the freedom so many were fleeing the oppression of the old world to enjoy. For many, this was the promise of America. First, a redundant but important disclaimer. All of this talk about religious freedom will be strictly contextually speaking. We're nowhere near actual freedom of religion as we might understand it. Not yet. In these years, the best you could hope for was some basic religious tolerance. And even then, it's not a modern concept of tolerance based on the legal equality of individuals or a broad social ethos of live and let live. Tolerance in these days is more like we think you're heretic scum, we're going to do everything in our power to keep you a second-class citizen, but we're not going to try to set you on fire anymore. Virginia doesn't really register on the scale at all at this point in time. Religious tolerance isn't even a sales angle there. And the church would be thoroughly Anglican and be used specifically as another lever of social control. Food was communal, and if you wanted your daily ration of boiled tree bark or whatever was on the menu that day, you would be attending services. But how does the Plymouth Colony stack up to all the hype in the Religious Freedom Department? Well, considering the times, not too shabbily, at least for Protestants within the acceptable spectrum. The Separatists were free to practice their form of Protestantism without harassment, mostly thanks to being on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean from the English church. And they would retain a healthy distrust of any state church for at least a generation or two. Meanwhile, the strangers of Plymouth, be they Anglican or more moderate Puritans, were ultimately free to practice their way. I'm sure there could be tensions, say around Christmas, a holiday that the Separatists sort of scorned and didn't celebrate, but it didn't really boil over like it could have. That might have something to do with the Separatists being sensitive to intolerance, having been on the receiving end of the truncheon more than a few times. And it probably helped that the Separatists and the Strangers each formed social blocks that weren't really powerful enough to lord it over one another. And a kind of relatively harmonious balance was achieved, at least in the early years. Things are going to start to change in New England by the late 1620s with the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony to the north of Plymouth. Throughout the 1630s, there will be a great migration of Puritans from England, whose population will quickly dwarf Plymouth's. And they're going to really start setting the religious tone of the region. And tolerance is not going to be tolerated. 
these Puritans have no real qualms about the state and the church being synonymous, as long as it's the right church. And even in those instances where there isn't an explicit state apparatus, you still have those collective congregational covenants as a rigid social basis. These new Puritan settlers in the region were building a city on the hill to serve as a beacon of godliness in a world full of sin. And everyone had to abide by the ideals here. Sinful behavior and heretical ideas could not be allowed to take root. It threatened to bring the displeasure of God down onto everyone and ruin everything they were trying to achieve here. Family spied on family, neighbors spied on neighbors, towns spied on towns, looking for any signs of anyone straying from the path. And if you violate this covenant and fail to correct yourself appropriately, well, you're out. You're not bringing the wrath of God down on us by playing music or being idle or engaging in gossip. And if there's any serious theological differences, well, the result could be anywhere from we've decided you should leave now to we've decided you should be hung. It was a society that I think most Americans today, even many deeply religious Americans, would find unacceptably invasive and strict, especially if the state was involved in any way. Of course, with all of this fervor to do right in the eyes of God, there were some strong disagreements on exactly the right way to do that. And a running theme of the history of New England at this point will be about religious dissidents challenging whatever the current Puritan orthodoxy is, and then being cast out of these communities. And then these dissidents subsequently wandering some ways away and starting their own communities. And you can't talk about religious tolerance in this era without talking about minister and theologian Roger Williams and the Rhode Island and Providence plantations he'd helped found. Because Williams will throw the whole grading curve in regards to religious freedom. By the time he first arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631, he was among the hardest of the hardcore separatists there. And he'd set about making himself something of a pariah, preaching and stump-thumping in places like Boston and Salem. He was received well at Plymouth, but even they weren't separatist enough for his liking. He preached at various settlements for a while, attacking not only the Puritan churches of New England, but the legal basis for their colonial charters. He had this crazy idea that the Stuart Kings never really owned any of the land to begin with, and that if you hadn't actually bought the land you'd claim to own from the Indians, then you were stealing. I mean, it was nuts. And obviously, this tinfoil crank had to go. In January 1636, Williams would have to make a run for it, ahead of charges of sedition and heresy. He'd spend a few months in the care of the Narragansett people, from whom he'd ultimately buy some land, strategically out of the reach of the other colonies and their charters, and start a settlement he'd call Providence. And Puritans of all stripes love the name Providence for their settlements. There'd be a bunch of them throughout the Americas, including one started by Puritans fleeing from Virginia into Maryland, which would evolve into this sleepy, quaint little rustic village we now call Annapolis. Anyway, Williams's Providence, and what is today Rhode Island, will attract other religious dissenters and antinomians like Anne Hutchinson and many others, and they'd start their own communities in the region, all radically devoted to separation of church and state, and to allowing people to worship as they please, without repercussions, so long as they kept the peace. And they're going to do it in a way that even Americans today could mostly recognize and you know be proud of. Consensus was achieved democratically, and they would openly declare their devotion to tolerance as a matter of principle. If you want a shining example of religious freedom in the early 17th century context of those terms, it's hard to beat the Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Just don't forget what a freakish anomaly places like this were in the 1630s. By and large, tolerance wasn't popular. From a spiritual angle, it's potentially dangerous. God has a more direct influence on events in these days than many of us in this age of science could easily understand. It's a world mostly devoid of coincidences. If something bad happened to you, or to your farm, or to your town, or to your kingdom, there was a reason. Whether it was witchcraft or sinful or heretical behavior going on around you, something or someone brought it upon you. So when it came to your faith, you didn't want to get it wrong. And you didn't want people around you who were doing it wrong. 
because you could all suffer from that wrath and you could all be denied God's grace. It was righteous to actively combat these heretical ideas. To not do so might be interpreted as shirking on accomplishing God's will. Spirituality wasn't simply about maintaining some life balance or about your individual pursuit of happiness. It went beyond all temporal considerations. It was about your immortal soul, about all of our immortal souls. Tolerance of heresy? What spiritual good could come of that? On a more worldly level, you would have had a century or so of hardcore animosity and violence between Catholics and Protestants, and between church traditionalists and radical evangelicals. There has been a seemingly endless series of events to mutually reinforce distrust and hate. You would likely have known of atrocities in your lifetime perpetuated against your side. You may have even personally lived through one. You couldn't just cozy up to these people after all that. And religion at this time is intrinsically tied into internal and international politics. So even if you weren't typically hypersensitive to religious differences, there were all sorts of political factors and externalities that might force you to pick a side. Conversely, there was hardly any political capital intolerance. Even if a ruler and politician could see the utilitarian value of trying to keep religious peace, they still usually had to pretend to be tough on Catholics or separatists to make a show of it, to do otherwise just fed popular opposition. The initial pro-tolerance countercurrent is mostly going to come from unpopular religious minority groups, for whom tolerance is really the only option if they want to avoid persecution. After Henry VIII split from Rome, the ultimate aim of English Catholics wasn't tolerance. They were trying to take back power and steer the state church back to Rome. When they got power back, briefly, under Mary, Protestants were persecuted. When the pendulum swung back again to Protestants in the Elizabethan era, many prominent Catholics were actively working with foreign Catholic powers for the overthrow of their own governments. But after the Spanish Armada failed and all the other abortive attempts at assassinations and coups failed and backfired spectacularly, and with so much pressure coming down on them from the state, Catholic attitudes began to evolve. The dream of shepherding the Church of England back to Catholicism began to look more and more like an unattainable pipe dream. Now, the immediate goal was just finding some room to practice their faith without facing the clampdown. And more and more, you'll see some English Catholics trying to separate and balance their loyalties to their royal sovereign and their loyalties to the Roman Church, to try to walk the razor's edge between the two and to have it both ways. Sir George Calvert will be something of an embodiment of this mode of thinking. His desire to try and diffuse religious conflict by essentially ignoring it, as well as his loyalty to king and country in both word and deed, will inspire a different model of religious tolerance, attempted first in Newfoundland around 1628, and later attempted by his son Cecil in Maryland around 1634. This model will be very different than the one that will come about a few years later in Rhode Island, and won't leave many modern Americans feeling very warm and fuzzy in regard to the civil liberties we all take for granted today. Unlike Rhode Island, Maryland's religious tolerance would be an arbitrary and top-down affair. In 1633, as the Ark and the Dove set sail to start a new colony, Lord Baltimore will send a list of instructions, along with the acting governor, his brother Leonard, detailing, among other things, the proper way for Catholics to act during the voyage and during settlement. Essentially, he wanted them to keep their worship on the DL, keep it out of plain sight, and avoid any conflicts with the Protestants. Do not rock the boat, and do not bring down any heat on us in this early stage. And this will embody the prevailing philosophy of the Calvert brand of tolerance, Calvert and his colony were in a uniquely difficult and precarious position politically. An English colony, owned and run by a Catholic aristocracy, was a whole different kettle of fish than a few wingnut separatists and dissenters hiding out in Rhode Island. Separatists may have been a nuisance to state authorities, but Catholicism had popular hatred. Catholicism was an existential crisis for England. It was the great international conspiracy. 
And while Rhode Island's laws may have theoretically protected Catholics, in the 1630s, there weren't really any Catholics there to protect, to put it to the test. While Maryland would instantly be surrounded and infiltrated by powerful potential enemies by its very nature. The only powerful Protestant Cecil Calvert could count on in his corner will be his wildly unpopular and wishy-washy king, Charles I, and his dad's old BFF, Sir Thomas Wentworth. And both of these guys will be decapitated in the 1640s, so you can see how this is going to turn out. Calvert will attempt to use his authority as Lord Proprietor to steer the thread through the eye of the needle, mostly by trying to stay under the radar and make it appear like there was nothing untoward going on here to those in England with an axe to grind. No tax money will go to building churches, especially Catholic ones, though the Jesuits will fill that void. Even the manorial system Calvert envisaged for the colony was a conscious attempt to sort of camouflage the open practice of Catholicism. Cellular, self-contained units of private property made it easier to worship unnoticed. This is how Catholicism had survived in England in places like Yorkshire. Big manor houses on big estates, away from prying eyes. The Jesuits who had traveled to Maryland did so as land-owning gentlemen. The Jesuit order itself could not technically own land, and Jesuit priests were not afforded the special privileges they would have access to in an actual Catholic nation, something that will rankle the Jesuits in Maryland and would almost instantly lead to antagonism between them and the Calvert regime. Early on, it was like the Lord Proprietor was trying to avoid clearly stating anything about religion. By the time Maryland's famous Act of Toleration was passed in 1649, it was really only codifying the implicit tolerance which had already existed. And arguably, it was really a half-step backwards in regards to freedom of religion. Lord Baltimore was reacting to external political realities, as well as an influx of Puritan settlers. And the act contained all sorts of scary-sounding clauses in regards to blasphemy, and limited explicit tolerance only to those who believed in Jesus Christ. The act of tolerance would also explicitly ban what Calvert had already implicitly banned, religious defamation. You couldn't say bad things about other Christian religions. So there might be some freedom of conscience, but freedom of speech, not so much. And despite the letter of the law, these ordinances would really only apply to Catholics. They couldn't say anything defamatory against Protestantism or Puritans. Which seems ironic in a Catholic colony, but think about the optics of this thing. Catholics couldn't even vote or hold office in England. Now Catholic authorities in an English colony are going to punish Protestants for talking smack about the Pope? Imagine the instant outrage and unwanted attention this would cause back in the mother country and in the sister colonies. To most of us today, the act of toleration would barely seem tolerant. But at the time, it was radically progressive, and would manage to protect most religious minorities as well as anywhere for decades. But it would be a near constant struggle to remain under the radar of the enemies of toleration. It would rely on the Calverts maintaining control of the colony, which they'd lose on a few occasions. And as we'll see, it would ultimately fail before the turn of the 18th century. So in terms of religious freedom, to me, it's Rhode Island that conforms more closely to the American ideal of Hey man, just let your freak flag fly, so long as you don't hurt anybody. Even more so than the Pilgrims. Whereas Maryland is like that guy anxiously freaking out at his own house party, trying to turn the stereo down and get those naked people off his lawn before someone calls the cops on him. Like so many of Lord Baltimore's grand ideas, ideals, and designs, his grip on the full proprietary authority granted by the Maryland Charter of 1632 will be compromised to the second the rubber hits the road. And he'll be beset on all sides by threats from his enemies in England, from Virginians, from Puritan refugees, from Swedes colonizing the Delaware River, from Susquehannocks on his frontiers, from Jesuits in his own colony, and from settlers of all stripes who want to remind Lord Baltimore that this isn't the Middle Ages, and that they expected some representation in government. And the colony would barely be off the ground before political and religious earthquakes going off in Britain and Ireland send tsunamis crashing into our tiny province. 
And Calvert will desperately be trying to hold it together for decades. And you have all of this to look forward to on A History of Maryland. So I hope you'll stick with me. I mean, there's a period in our history known as the plundering times. Frankly, you'd be remiss to miss that. I know this has been another long episode, and it may seem like one big rambling digression. But I'm hoping that by hitting a bunch of these themes now, I can set the tone on what makes Maryland different, paint a complex background for just as complex of a narrative, and hopefully spare us all further digressions down the road. Next time, we'll be back to the narrative, with George Calvert in mid-1625 trying to get his affairs in order in Ireland before traveling himself to his colony of Avalon. We'll wade into the historically soupy mystery behind Calvert's removal of Edward Wynne as governor of Avalon, and briefly discuss George's even more historically soupy and mysterious new wife, Joan, the first Lady Baltimore. And I'm just going to leave it there, because I'd really like to start getting these episodes into more manageable lengths. If there's one thing I've learned, is that me promising anything is the kiss of death. So please, join me next time for episode 2.3, Westward Ho for Avalon. However long that's going to be and whatever it's going to be about. Thank you again. This has been A History of Maryland. I'm still Jared Books. You can still find us on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. And I will see you then. Seriously, we will be watching you. I know a guy at the NSA. Hey, 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 hey.